0: It's my privilege to introduce Martin to us this morning. We are in the middle of a series in 1 Samuel, but we're taking a little pause from that. Um, Last week, we heard from James Woolley from International Justice Ministries, um, looking at some of the horrors of things like um, human trafficking and stuff like that. And um, I think we, as a a church, have been stirred. We weren't around, but we heard, heard good things about that. So we, as a church, have been stirred about those things, which is amazing. This week, we're going to bring things closer to home. We're looking nationally and more locally. And um, Martin's going to help us with that. Martin um, has been an elder at uh, Barnabas Church in Shrewsbury for... Or is it Shrewsbury? I'll leave that one with you. Um, For the last 20 years. um, But in 2015, although still carrying on as an elder, still on staff at at Barnabas, now heads up Jubilee Plus, which is an organisation set up to spearhead and encourage churches in um, working with the poor, building healthy c- communities, looking at national issues, political issues, looking at issues of justice, and things like that. And um, he's written two books, one of which I can wholeheartedly recommend because I've read. I confess I haven't read the other one, but I'm going to now, since Martin very kindly gave me a copy this morning. Um, and they're available to buy out on the tables over there somewhere um, afterwards. So um, take advantage of that, please, if you would. and. Um, so I'm really, really thrilled to have Martin here. It's been lovely getting to know Martin in the last 12 hours or something. And um, I'm sure g- God's going to speak to us today. So why don't we just welcome Martin as he comes to the lectern? And I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray for all of us and Martin. Lord, I want to thank you for this man. Thank you for uh, what, what you've achieved through him already, Lord. Thank you for the amazing ministry that you've got before him. And Lord, And we just welcome you this morning as you speak to us through him. Thank you, Lord. Have your way. Amen. Thanks, man.
1: Amen. Great to see you. Uh, good to be here in Kingston. I often preach three-point sermons, but I try not to forget the third point. Um, I think some people listening pray that I will because the t- first two points have been so long, uh, which wasn't the case with that magnificent uh, introduction to Little Sparks that you heard earlier on. Uh, it's great to see you here this morning. Um, I have a very privileged ministry traveling the country, um, working in an organization called Jubilee Plus, um, which has just been referred to. And when I look at my life, I think I'm a very, very unlikely person to be doing what I'm doing today, and I'll give you the reason for it. I grew up in a very secure middle-class English home, um, and I didn't have too many things to worry about. I had a private education, um, and I had a career planned out in teaching. My dad was a successful teacher. My granddad was a successful teacher. My older brother was a successful teacher. So it was pretty obvious where things might go. I had the gifts that were appropriate to it. Then my life was mapped out for me. At the age of 15, I had a music teacher at school and he prayed for me. He was a believer. I'd never come across an evangelical Christian before in my life and he prayed for me, and the long and short of it was that I came to believe in Jesus Christ at the age of 15, quite suddenly, in a private school, um, in a boarding school. Um, I suddenly saw the gospel and the cross, and I saw Christ, and I imbibed a form of Christianity which was basically to do with personal salvation, finding a good church and following the Bible, keeping your life clean and keeping a straight road for the rest of your life, and that's what I thought Christianity was. And by the way, all those things are holy good. Three years later, I did a gap year, and I went in 1978 to South Africa in the middle of a very tense period of apartheid. I worked in rural South Africa uh, in a a mission uh, organization, working with the rural poor. And during the year that I spent out there, I witnessed scenes of unbelievable injustice, uh, of great social pain, of great racial division. I went to the the township of Soweto two years after the riots when white people weren't allowed to go there, managed to get a permit and got in. I was living in a black community in a rural situation. I met the brother of one of uh, Nelson Mandela's colleagues on Robben Island and this brother was a believer and that had a big influence on me. And I came back to Britain and I thought, what kind of Christianity do I believe in? What kind of a Christian am I? And what's going on in our country, anyway? I need to look a little bit below the surface, because I'm sitting in this comfortable life, I'm just heading off to a good university, I've got a secure personal background, but I've just experienced some pretty life-changing experiences, and I've been opened up to a world of suffering that extends way beyond that particular country that I was in. I'd been in that time. I'd been up to what was then Rhodesia, and gone and been travelling through the country in the middle of a, 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 a guerrilla warfare situation that was going on. Met people who'd had people who died, and so on. I, I had all sorts of uh, important experiences there. What kind of a Christianity was I going to live for? And I made a big decision. I looked at the Bible again, and I found out that there were a lot of things in the Bible I hadn't really noticed. Have you ever had that experience? And I hadn't noticed that our God isn't only interested in taking an individual person and rescuing them from a dark world into a wonderful heaven, although he is interested in that. But he's actually planting his church community and advancing his kingdom in this world in a strategic way which is going to impact every dimension of the society it's in. If that church is a healthy church, I'd never really noticed that before. And I decided, as still a very young Christian, I want to live for this kind of Christianity that's fundamentally based on the Bible, not changing any of my convictions about salvation and the gospel and the cross, um, but also adding in another dimension. And as time went on, I went through a teaching career, I went into business, I ended up in church leadership, and then I started leading a church, and I thought, what kind of a church do I want to lead? And the Lord started speaking to me very clearly. We were a church... A little bit bigger than this, we didn't have a building in our town of Shrewsbury like you don't have your building here. I felt the Lord gave me faith to find a building and to buy a building to turn it into a community centre for our town. And by the grace of God, that's what we were able to do, to buy a big building um, off the army and uh, develop it into a community center. And the Lord gave me faith to believe that we could become one of the best-known churches in town, Uh, not because of our worship services necessarily, but because of the things that we did in the community. And all these years later, that has actually come to pass. And we are very well-known in town, and people are drawn to us because they see the ministry and are just flowing out from the church into the community whether it's care for the elderly, whether it's the bereavement service we run, whether it's the food bank we run for the whole town, whether it's the debt advice center we run, whether it's the the four different life skills courses that we run for people who've lost their confidence and their lives are broken, um, or whether it's other things that we do. Now, I was just ticking over doing all these things, and then I got a knock on the door from a guy called David Stroud, who some of you will know, who previously led up New Frontiers UK before we moved into spheres, and he said to me, I'd like to have a meal with you. always fatal when people invite you to a meal, but they don't tell you why. <laughs> so, in that, in that meal, he said to me, Martin, we'd like you to be the champion of uh, the social dimension of, of our ministry in New Frontiers across the country, and I thought, wow, why me? I'm just Joe Bloggs' pastor in a regional town, just plodding along, doing my stuff. And, uh, but I took up the challenge. Uh, in 2011, we started what's called Jubilee Plus, um, and it turned into a charity, it turned into conferencing, training, books, consultancy, theological writing, working with big Christian organizations, getting involved in the political process, and all sorts of other things that I could spend a lot of time talking to you about. And so here I am, I had to give up leading my church because I couldn't fit everything in. So I handed over to one of my colleagues about three years ago, and that enables me to be on the road. And so that, in a nutshell, is my story. But my conviction, if you wanted to drill it down in biblical terms, um, is best described by actually referring... um, Oh, by the way, I need to talk to you about my team. I've forgotten about them. Sorry about that. I hope they're not listening to this on a podcast. This is the Jubilee Plus core team here, uh, which, which I've gathered. They come from all over the country and they have a variety of skills. And they're not pastors, by the way. That's no, no particular thing about pastors. But I look for other kind of people to help me with this kind of thing. On the left is Sue, who's our conference administrator. And the guy with gray hair at the back, Pete, is her husband. And they run all our conferencing and so on. And then the other guy in the black at the back, Andy Biggs, he's from Durham. He's currently financial director of Tradecraft, but he's our research director. One of the things the churches need to do is we need to know what we're talking about. And the only way to do that sometimes is to get the facts. And one thing that Christians are often very short of when they're looking into society is facts. They've got feelings, they've got insights, they've got prophetic directions, they've got gut feelings and personal circumstances. We often don't quite know really what's going on. That's really important. And by the way, one of the most important things I can say to you this morning is it's really worth doing some research on your community. Because you'll find things you didn't know that were there. And as I was just praying and thinking this morning, I wondered what the trafficking situation is in this area. I came to a church in London not so long ago. I didn't know who was speaking last week, by the way, when I thought that. but um, And I know that guy, but um, <clears throat> I came to a church in London not so long ago. and. Uh, Somebody told me that they found out there was a main human trafficking route going right through their community, and they decided that was the target they were going to go for in their social action. Anyway, my friend Andy at the back in the the black shirt, he heads up our research department. We're researching currently addictions across the country. We're trying to map the whole of all the issues, all the ways churches are engaging with addictions across the whole country because no one else has ever done it before, and we think it's a key bit of work for a future Natalie Williams, some of you may know in the front row, she's from Hastings in New Grand, She heads up our communications. And then Sheena's uh, our PA. And then Steve on the, on the right of the picture, he comes from Bournemouth. Um, he's, he's heading up some, some work we're doing with uh, senior citizens. By the way, working with the elderly, that's, an abs- that's, that's one of the biggest deals for our nation in the next generation. They don't have to be poor to be needy. The demographic time bomb for, el- for the issues to do with the elderly is ticking really fast. And the church needs to wake up quickly and get strategic. We can do phenomenal things to minister to people of advanced years. Just another thing to mention. Anyway, that's my team. So let's go to the scriptures now because time is short and I want to really get into the word of God. Turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 4. A very well-known passage, but I want to give you an interpretation of this that may just stimulate your thinking. Um, <clears throat> And we're starting at verse 16. The text is there up on the screen. Uh, You'll remember the situation. Luke is the only one who records this particular incident. But very soon after Jesus started his ministry, been baptized down in the River Jordan further south by John the Baptist, he came back to Galilee. Mark and um, and Matthew record that he started preaching and teaching and, and proclaiming a very simple message. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And that was was how they summarized it. But it's only Luke who describes the moment when Jesus went back to his hometown. He's no longer living there because he's moving to Capernaum with his disciples. But Nazareth was his hometown, where his family came from. He went back to the synagogue he grew up in. And uh, this very interesting and amazingly significant incident took place, as described here. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, just a little bit of thought about this particular text. We all know it's probably, for, probably you know this from Isaiah 61. We'll come to that in just a moment. But can I just drill down a little bit of detail here? What is Jesus actually saying? He's saying that through his ministry, the coming of the kingdom, the preaching of the gospel, which he had just started in that very time frame for the first time after his baptism and after being in the wilderness, he's actually identifying probably five different things that are coming to pass. It's poetic, prophetic language, but I think you can see these dimensions if you look carefully. Number one, he's saying he's proclaiming good news to the poor. The proclamation of the gospel is coming. Notice the priority of the people he's aiming at. Those with a perceived need. And by the way, in Palestinian society, in that, in that particular time frame, that would be at least 50% of the population by economics because poverty and social vulnerability in economics was a big deal in those kind of societies and that's what the research tells us. Anyway, proclamation of the gospel, number one, to, to, have to, to proclaim freedom from, from, for the prisoners. This is probably a reference to the freedom from the control of sin. So the gospel, bringing freedom from sin, recovery of sight for the blind, a symbolic reference to the miracles, healing miracles that Jesus would bring, to set the oppressed free, probably a reference to the overcoming of demonic powers that were actually constraining people. So there's four ingredients. Now that's tough enough, isn't it, to actually enact all those four, wouldn't you agree? But then there's a a fifth dimension, which is almost always overlooked when people preach on this, because they treat it as a symbolic expression, but I want to suggest to you it's much more than that, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the year of the Lord's favor sounds a nice poetic expression, but the question that I ask myself is that when Isaiah wrote those words, um, many hundreds of years before, as recorded in Isaiah 61, what would he have had in mind? And the second question I ask myself is, what would the Jewish audience in the Nazareth synagogue have in mind when they heard the expression, the year of the Lord's favor? And because we're detached considerably from the Old Testament and from the immediate context of Jesus' preaching, sometimes we can miss something, which most commentators will indicate is there in the text. To the Jewish mind, the year of the Lord's favor was an unambiguous reference to, To something in the Mosaic law, which you probably know, the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25. No Jew could possibly doubt that there was a certain time in history that would repeat itself where God's favor would be particularly upon the people. And that is the 50th year in the cycle of national life in which, according to Mosaic legislation, Mosaic legislation... In Leviticus 25, a number of things would happen in society that were very dramatic, bearing in mind that land holding in Israel was given by tribal grouping. So you owned land because you were part of a tribe in a certain area, and that land could never be sold outright to anyone outside your tribe or to a foreigner. Bear, bear in mind this fact. And on the 50th year, what happened was that the tribal land holdings were restored if they had drifted in the previous 50-year period because somebody couldn't manage their land or they became sick or someone took, it, took, a, took control of the land or took their labor. A a disproportion would come in the economics. Some people get richer, some people get poorer, some people get big landowners, some people would lose their landholding. On the 50th year, the year of the Lord's favor, that was all overturned. If Paul had fallen on hard times, Paul and Belinda, and I'm from another tribal group or even from his same tribal group, and I say, well, look, I'll look after your land and you you can work for me, bonded laborer. That could go on for a few years, but when the 50th year came... The trumpet sounds in Israel, and Paul can say to me, my land's coming back to me, and I have to just give it back to you. The year of the Lord's favor brought social change and hope to those who'd fallen on hard times by their own mistakes or by misfortune or the actions of other people in Israel. Now, would you agree that's a year of favor? The economic levers were used in the land so that the rich never got too rich and the poor never got too poor. Now, Jesus is bringing a new covenant. So, the year of the Lord's favor in the new covenant isn't going to look like the old covenant, but it's going to have the same essential component. But we don't yet know in the Nazareth statement how that's going to work out. Because the new covenant is not based on a legal system and it's not based on landholding. It's based on the leading of the spirit of the church. And so we find even in Jesus' early teaching a prophetic indication that the coming of his kingdom will contain preaching the good news Resolving the issue of sin through forgiveness, healing the sick, overcoming demonic oppression in lives and raising up those who've been crushed or have lost the capacity to live sustainably or independently, the poor. He said it. And to the mind of the listener, that would be an unambiguous thought. The year of Jubilee is going to be reenacted. Now, my thesis is we have to find what the year of Jubilee is in the New Testament by looking at how the, how the Spirit led the church. And that's what I call Jubilee Plus. It'll be a little bit different in every society, and every generation. But I'm going to propose to you six essential ingredients we can find in the New Testament. Sorry, it's not a three-point talk. Don't count the number of points, otherwise you'll, you'll need your coffee really early. Okay, <laughs> Just follow the flow. I'll be really brief. Okay, we just move to the first three. It starts in the church. The second three are in the wider society, we'll come to those later. What, hap- what does the spirit lead the church to do in the early days? The first thing is to relieve need and poverty within the church communities itself. It started in, it started in the Jerusalem church. Do you remember people started selling things? Giving things away, making sure nobody had any needs and do you remember when they got a really big structural problem in the, New Testi- in the, in the church in Jerusalem? They had uh, uh, some difficulty in the distribution of food between the two groups of widows in Acts 6. Then the apostle said, right, we need to appoint seven guys to actually make sure that the distribution of food is organized. So the church organized some things to make sure that within the church community, everyone's needs are met. Now, that's a very radical thought. The church taking some responsibility for its own members, therefore demonstrating within its organic unity that the separation between rich and poor doesn't become a divide. There is a sharing, not by command and control, but by a heart of the spirit and sometimes some organization from the leaders, if that was necessary. That started in the Jerusalem church. And alongside that comes the second factor. Paul administered the fact that actually... In church life, the unit of the family is also a very important unit. And if there are needy people within family groups, the first people who are responsible for helping them is their family members before they come to the church. He deals with, with widows, for example, in 1 Timothy, his administration of how to deal with widows. The families need to help first. If there's no one to help her and she's in genuine need, then the church will help her. And then you have a third dimension, I could develop all these in in great length, but uh, you can go on the website, I've done seminars on this in detail, I'll just give you a quick summary. The third dimension is a really interesting one, and that is richer churches helping poorer churches. Now in the administration of Paul's apostolic ministry, he noticed a big diversity economically between some churches he planted in some areas and some churches he planted in other areas, so he actually began to organize collections of money particularly in the Macedonian area and in the Greek area, in order to help the Judaic churches in and around Jerusalem because economics were much more difficult there. And you probably remember in 2 Corinthians and in other places, there is the the movement of goods and finance, particularly from one church to help another. The same thing happened at Antioch when the prophet Agabus came and said there's going to be a famine down there in Jerusalem. And they collected money and they sent it down. Do you remember those incidents? We haven't got time to go into them in detail, but we see an interesting dynamic the Jubilee dynamic, I call it, which is that within the church, there is a sensitivity to real need. There is a, 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 a significant emphasis on the responsibility of families to help members of the families. So an empowerment of the family structure and responsibility in the family where they can pick it up. And thirdly, a sensitivity to the fact that a church does not exist in isolation, but it exists in partnership with other churches. And some are richer and some are poorer. And one of the applications of this message that we could make is to think which of the churches that we have connections with that we can help with resources. And that's one of the most strategic things that we can do in my church. We're very connected with churches in two nations. One is in the Ukraine and one is in Zambia where we are helping strategically with church partners in much, much poorer situations. That's an application of this message. So within the church, if you went into the New Testament period, you would see a kind of jubilee principle being enacted under the leadership of the Holy Spirit so that as people looked at the church communities, they would see that there's a social and an economic dimension to the Christian faith that raises people up. It keeps raising people up who are crushed down in the church community, in families, and and between churches, which you wouldn't see in Greek and Roman society. Hence, one of the attractions of the early church, the raising up of the vulnerable and the weak. Are you with me so far? Three more. Now, in wider society, we see three other applications. These are principles, really, um, which we have to flesh out in our own context. One is that Jesus fundamentally redefined what loving your neighbor meant Many of us don't realize that when it first appeared in the Levitical law code uh, in Leviticus, when it says, love your neighbor as yourself, the context is the Jewish communities. So it's basically saying to the Jews, if you have an argument with a fellow Jew, if you have an argument with a fellow Jew in in your town or village, love him. Don't fall out with him. But when Jesus gave us the parable of the Good Samaritan, he immediately transformed the Jewish understanding of that from within the people we relate to within our racial group to crossing over the divides, the Samaritan and the Jew in that particular case. And so we have a kind of universal principle of the loving of our neighbor becomes central to the Christian understanding of discipleship. Secondly, we find in the New Testament sometimes there is a prophetic voice for the poor. If you read the first few verses of James chapter 5, you'll get a very interesting blast from James there, who challenges landowners who are exploiting. Probably Jewish exiles who are messianic believers, and they're being exploited in those dispersed communities, that's probably the original context. And he's saying, he's warning them. So there is a place for the voice of the church to say when injustice comes up and people are crushed by it, to speak out. Compa- <laughs> is this me? to speak out compassionately for those in need. Now, that's what those involved in human trafficking and others are doing in our country, and it's a very, very important voice. And we in Jubilee Plus are doing that in some areas of national political life. And then being salt and light in society, that is taking every opportunity to be a blessing to people around us by the quality of our witness and the quality of our lives. So what I want to just commend to you from a biblical point of view is that Jesus started something far bigger than we sometimes realize with the Nazareth Manifesto, five ingredients. And the fifth one, the year of the Lord's favor, is a very, very important ingredient. And it's being demonstrated throughout the New Testament in a number of different ways. But what you notice, there isn't any legislation. There isn't any formal structure. There isn't any unique pattern to how that might work out. It's going to be different in every context. It takes the leading of the Spirit in order to help us to work out what are we called to do in our church situation. Now, I want to move on now and suggest to you six things that I found helpful In order to move in this direction as individuals and church community, here they come. Here are six things that I think you can find throughout the New Testament, and this is a journey that the church is on. Number one, simplicity. This is relating to our material lives. Nobody disputes that we live in an incredibly rich country and that many Christians have significant disposable income. Some have none. So, there is, a, there is a reality there, but we have a degree of comfort that is remarkable. What do we do with it? What do I do with it? Where do I set my standard of living? Where do I set my standard of giving? This, for me, is a very profound and searching question. What do I think about the luxuries of life, which can be blessings from God. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with any of those things. But how much do I need them? And so I encourage people on this journey to think about care for the poor and care for society in the context of thinking about their own lifestyles and working out how do we use our time, how do we use our money, how do we use our available financial resources, And I believe God is leading us uh, in general. By the way, this isn't a very popular message. I don't hear many other people talking about this, but I'm absolutely convinced of this. He's leading us down a route of keeping life simple, keeping as much available emotional, psychological, and financial energy and resources for kingdom investment. One of my friends did something really interesting. They're a very, very generous donor to to a local church. But they they have a separate fund, and it's a fund for need and poor in their accounts. They keep money aside in their own personal budget. And when they see a need, they've already got a fund designated. They don't say, oh, can we afford to help this person? They've been saving up. And so immediately, they give. And they're getting closer to the New Testament pattern, which isn't just focused on giving to the church. It's focused on three things, giving to the church, giving to your family and giving to the poor. Those are three priorities in the New Testament. We need all three. And it's not just about money, it's about time. One of the amazing things I find these days is people are screaming their lack of time. And some of it's because of the incredible pressure of work and family, and it's perfectly legitimate. But some of it's because we've got so many hobbies that take up so much time, and so so much resource needs to go into sustaining an entertaining lifestyle. And I wonder whether God wants us to do that and so simplicity leads to generosity. And part of the message of Jubilee is a message, Jubilee Plus is a message to the heart. And God, he's touching our hearts that we, that we are getting closer to human need and not insulating ourselves from it. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit and it's going on in some of you right now through your life circumstances. And the key to that very often is the third point and it's what I call proximity. Proximity. What I notice in many churches in the UK is that people are not close enough to human need to really understand how it feels and what's going on in the communities around them, because it's very easy to live in a bubble. I went to a very elite university in this country, and one of the most important experiences of my education uh, was the day that I was walking along the, the high street in that particular city, and uh, I noticed a guy, I'd seen him many times before, just standing on the side of the road, or sitting and asking for money. And I got into conversation with him, he told me his name was Brian. And we, we, would, we would talk regularly, he'd always be in the same place, and I'd go past him regularly, um, and I started befriending him. And then something very, very surprising happened. He said to me, Martin, I've been housed by the council, I'm no longer homeless. And he said, will you come to my place? And when he said that, I knew he'd never said that to anyone before. He didn't have any family, didn't have any known friends. And I realized, to my astonishment, I was his closest human contact. So I went to his basement f- flat. He smoked, and he never opened the windows. So I took a deep breath, and I went in, and I tried to hold my breath till I came out again. But it doesn't really work when you're there for half an hour or an hour. And I visited him regularly. We talked, we drank tea together, we became friends. And uh, I told him about Christ and we had some great conversations, I prayed for him regularly. Then came the moment when I was leaving the university and I had to break the news that I was going. There were tears, his tears, and mine. I was changing. I wasn't looking at people from a distance. I was becoming close to them. I'd done it before in my life. And I've done it again, many times. Jesus teaches us proximity. Teaches us to be vulnerable and to open ourselves up to people who are different from us by race or economic background or social background or culture. And that's often the missing ingredient. It's the key that opens things up. We need to work through community, not on our own. And you you all know that because you believe in the local church. And then we need strategy. What is the strategy for this church? You don't have a building, so that means your strategy is going to be very different from the churches that do have a building. There are some projects up and running in Kingston that you can support without having to run them yourself, and that's really good. Nothing wrong with all those things. But what is the Lord saying to you? What are the prophetic words to this church concerning your community? What are the prophetic circumstances that have happened amongst your members that lead you in a certain direction? What resources and gifts have you got available? What is the Lord saying? That becomes the key. Because in this new world of social engagement that many churches are, are getting involved with now, have been for a number of years, it's very easy to say we should do that because someone else is doing it, we should do this because someone else is doing it, or because there's a need here or whatever. But you can only do what your resources allow you to do and what god leads you to do you have to prioritize on certain things if you're going to do them corporately and so one of the key things in the next period of time if you're following the trajectory of this message and the last one for last sunday is to work out what is the lord actually saying prophetically to us what are we going to prioritize because here we have a paradoxical situation you're living in kingston you know let's be honest In overall terms, it's a rich area. But let's also face the fact that lots of things are happening behind closed doors that we don't know about. And one of the greatest needs might be loneliness. There might be secret things happening. There might be the hidden faces of poverty. I'm hoping to write a book shortly on that topic. There are many hidden things in our society that people don't really see or they only half see. And it might be that the Lord leads you to one of those things and that you prioritize in one of those areas. You might be people here who are going to start social businesses, um, which are going to really be significant in terms of employment or change uh, within uh, this community. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday at a national conference we ran in Cambridge. um, uh, And he comes from Nottingham. And he was a primary school teacher. And God spoke to him one day to give up his job and to start a business, a gardening business, and to employ only those people who are largely unemployable, people from prison, people from addiction backgrounds. And he's been doing that for uh, uh, nearly 10 years now. And it's become a major project. It's just recently been featured on local radio in his area. I listened to the podcast just the other day. Uh, And he's been discipling men through employment. And so there are some people here, who are entrepreneurs and your business people, and you think, well, I can't do church projects. Well, you don't have to do church projects. Why don't you use your entrepreneurial brain for social enterprise and social engagement that just might be something in this church that could be born in that particular area that I wouldn't know because I don't know you. But what I'm seeing across the country is some of the smart ideas are the business ideas, which bring... Finance to people in need, bring employment to the relatively unemployable, or bring a social good for the community. And those things are important and they're growing in our country. And it's one of God's creative things that's developing at the moment. My final point, I'm not watching the clock. Can't see the clock, fortunately. (laughs) Expectancy. Now here we touch the spiritual atmosphere and environment of our nation and of every church. What do we really expect? My expectations are high. I have faith. I have faith that in the next decade, the great energy of churches like ours in movements like New Frontiers and some other movements are going to be harnessed for great social change and great mission as well. God wants to win people for himself and so there's an evangelistic dimension to all this, it's not just about social engagement and so those of you who are evangelistically orientated need to orientate yourself towards socially needy people that is, a, that is something that doesn't happen very often but it's astonishingly biblical what did Jesus say he came to do? to preach good news to the not the super rich primarily although he, there's enough grace for them as well but to those in need. We've got to bring evangelism and social action together. And that's a real art form. And that's got to be done in the next generation. We need an expectation that God can move and change lives. I finish with a story from my own church. A man came to our debt advice center uh, two or three years ago. His name is David. He's given me permission to share his story. I've written about it in my book anonymously. You can read it in the recent book. And uh, he was having some financial problems. Uh, He was a part-time teacher. His wife uh, became unexpectedly ill. He was middle-aged. He was getting into financial difficulties. And then quite suddenly, while he was in financial difficulties and receiving help from us, his wife suddenly died, very suddenly. He came through the doors of our money advice team, very emotional, very upset, and he said to them, I can't pay for the funeral. Just imagine that. Just lost his wife and he couldn't afford the funeral. So we helped him with that particular process and helped him through the funeral process. One of the team invited him to the Alpha Course. He then became a believer, got baptized, joined the church. And now he's involved in one of our projects, just starting um, visiting the homes of needy families on a regular basis that we've encountered. So he's a frontline worker for us. God can do these things, and he is doing them all over the country. Without expectancy, we're never going to believe for those kind of transformations. And by the way, it doesn't happen every time. One final story, to just to prove the point. We used to work. We used to have an addiction support group. To working with a local Christian rehab, and we used to run a support group. And one of the guys professed a lot of faith, and he said all the right things. Um, anyway, one day we found that our centre had been burgled, and my office had been broken into, and every single one of the filing cabinet drawers had been opened with a crossbar, a uh, uh, crowbar. Anyway, this guy was nailed for this by the police through fingerprinting. So, you know, we gave him grace and he came and he did the center over. He did our center over. So, not every story ends up well. That's the point. And by the way, I've kept that filing cabinet. If you come into my office today, you can see all the marks just to remind me there's pain and there's joy. But I prefer to go down that route to sit in comfort and just hope that god's going to change the world around us because he isn't going to do it unless we get our hands dirty and many many christians are engaged in that very effectively in secure and reliable and effective ways and philip invited me to come and give this talk because i guess he and paul believe this is part of the direction that you want to go as a church I don't know too well and Philip took a pass out this morning just so he didn't have to hear the talk directly um, but there we are you know I think we'll let him off in the circumstances the joyful circumstances that he has in his life brothers and sisters some of you as I've been speaking you're feeling called you're feeling a stirring and I'm going to invite you in a minute to come and to the front and I'm going to pray over you. I may not pray for you all individually, but I have faith of impartation, of prophetic impartation from the ministry we're involved with, that where people move from aspiration to action, move from slight uncertainty to prophetic clarity as to what God is calling them to do. And there will be some callings here. And there will be things you've had in your mind and in your heart, and you think, well, I don't say that, or I don't act on this." Or I don't know how to proceed with it. Well, today is an open door where you are going to make, You could make the first step. We should just come and stand at the front and say, OK, I want to be available. I've got these skills. I've got this business skill. I've got this social skill. I've got this job. I've got this family circumstance. I've got this calling. I've got this friendship. I've got this contact. I wonder what God's going to do with it. I'm not going to give you the answers, because I don't know any of the answers. But I do know a God who calls us. And we're in a day of calling for the church. And our nation needs that calling. Even though you live in a rich part of the country, I can tell you our society is vulnerable. There are fractures everywhere. And the church has great opportunities, even in rich communities. And the resources you have can be shared, uh, not only with people in your community, but maybe even a little bit further afield. Let's stand together. And I don't go for a lot of drama in altar calls. But I do go for conviction. I really believe what I've said. And I do believe there's a great opportunity today. So, folks, if you've sensed some calling in this area or some desire to move forward that you may not be able to articulate in very precise terms, it doesn't really matter. No one's going to ask you. But I'm asking you to please come and just stand at the front because we're going to have a time of just praying. Uh, And we're just going to... Just ask the Lord to lead this church.